Welcome back to Sunday Morning Magazine. Here's your host, Rodney Lear. And welcome back. My next guest joins me over the phone. David Matthews is the author of the book, Ace of Spades. Good morning, Dave. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, how are you? I'm doing great this morning. Now, the new book is your memoir of growing up as a biracial child in America. First of all, let's start with your parents. Tell us about your parents. Uh, My father uh, is a uh, black journalist. Uh, His name's Ralph Matthews, and uh, he's originally from Baltimore. And my mother is a Jewish lady. Um, Her name is Robin Kahn. And uh, she's from Philadelphia, and I never met her. I met my, or I was raised by my father and his grandmother. So I was raised in a strictly uh, African American household. So those were all my cultural influences. Okay, and let's just make it clear this morning, in case you're just tuning in, we're speaking to David Matthews. The name of his new book is Ace of Spades. Um, Let's just make it clear for everyone um, so they can have a visual, you know, of course, this is radio, Mm -hmm. but you can basically pass for black or white. And that in itself caused a lot of identification um, problems with you growing up. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very accurate. And I'm also from a place at a time in America where, you know, in Baltimore in the late 70s and 80s, uh, when I uh, moved there from the suburbs of D.C., uh, by the time I moved to Baltimore, you know, there were no Hispanics. There were no real immigrants from Southeast Asia. There was re- there were really only two options, and that was black or white. And uh, especially if you looked a little bit darker than, than your average, you know, German-Irish Protestant or Catholic descendant, you were automatically grilled as to what your your race was. Um, so I didn't really have the option of saying, you know, I'm, you know, Latino or, you know, there was no worldliness to it. Mm-hmm. So I really only had the option of being either black or white. And I would, I picked white because I thought it was easier. Um, I thought it gave me a better shot. You know, I, I could see the way uh, teachers and policemen and shopkeepers treated the white kids. And uh, I knew that I didn't want to be treated as, you know, with suspicion or sort of pitied or, given an extra hand when maybe uh, I didn't need one, um, which was sort of all part of the, the smug racism that, that I think liberal white America puts onto to black America in some ways. Okay, now let me ask you this now. Growing up, um, how sympathetic or supportive was your dad in terms of your struggle with your identity as a child? Um, I don't think he really saw it as a struggle. I mean, to him, I was black, and uh, I think he assumed, uh, even though, you know, my skin color rendered me a little bit lighter than he was, and I didn't really look like him or any of the other kids in the neighborhood, but I think he just assumed that I was black and that was how it would be. Um, so I didn't really, it, was, it wasn't something we spoke about, the fact that I passed or that I was pretending to be white, because I knew that he would not tolerate that for an instant. I mean, he's a very, very proud black man. Okay, so that was never a point of conversation between you and your dad? No, it was sort of all the... Uh, the aspect of my passing was sort of always bubbling under the surface where there was a tension where he knew that I didn't embrace the culture the way he did. And I always sort of, as he would call it, uh, put on airs or acted really bougie. But um, it, it, we, it was never really out in the open and discussed. It was just one of those father-son kind of conflicts that uh, are always under the surface. Okay. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. On the phone with me this morning is David Matthews. He's the author of the new book, Ace of Spades. Now, when did you first start noticing that you were different or feeling that you were different? 
um, when I was nine years old. Uh, until then, my father and I lived uh, in the suburbs of Maryland, and this was uh, the post-hippie era, the early and mid-70s. And, you know, there were lots of different kids of different ethnicities, and everybody sort of got along, and, and race was never an issue. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. Uh, and then when we moved to Baltimore, the inner city, in 1977, um, my first day there, I could tell that, you know, there were many, many poor black neighborhoods, and the white people seemed to live in nicer houses and have nicer cars, and there was no mingling. So in the suburbs where all the kids were sort of playing together, uh, and I took that to be the norm, when I got to Baltimore, I noticed that white people were staying with white people and black people were staying with, with black people, and there was no real mingling. And my first day at school, uh, you know, there was a table full of white kids in the cafeteria. Um, they comprised about 10% of the school population, and the rest of the school was, was entirely black. And, you know, they, they surrounded me the first day. The first minute I walked into school, a group of kids surrounded me and demanded to, to know what I was, which was a really difficult question because I'd never been asked the question, so I didn't have an answer. And I just sort of went with the group of kids who looked a little bit more like me than the other group, and that happened to be the white kids in that time and place. Now tell me how the kids treated you differently in school. You said that they basically made you choose. Mm -hmm. You come with us, you're going with them. Right, exactly. What what are you? Um, how did they treat you? How were you treated by the the African-American kids, the black kids, um, and the, versus the white kids? Yeah, it's uh, a good question. The, the black kids um, were a little, you know, there was still that sort of... Uh, caste system in the black community. I, I'm not sure if it still exists to the same extent today, where sort of the lighter-skinned you are, uh, you know, the darker-skinned brothers and sisters would sort of assume that you had been given a he uh, an advantage or that you somehow were a little bit smug or, or like I said before, that you're putting on airs. So there's a little bit of hostility that darker-skinned kids had toward uh, lighter-skinned black kids. Um, in terms of white people, um, I think so white, that, that's kind of an inner racism. That, in right, itself. that's inner, right? So with white people, I noticed that you know they wanted to know what my race was more as a way to determine whether to let me in or keep me out. With black people, I always felt like they, if they knew that I was even mixed, they would have welcomed me, but it would have been with its own set of circumstances, like you know, okay, you're one of us, but we're going to give you a really hard time for not looking much like one of us, and we're going to assume that you know, you're know you a little bit stuck up or that you're getting a lot of advantages, which I'm sure was true. I'm sure I would have gotten advantages just for being lighter-skinned um, because within the black community, you know, that was seen as a benefit at the time. Um, so I just felt like it was the, the lesser of two evils. Spend my life convincing my black brethren and sisters that I was one of them, or go with the group that seemed to give me a little bit less resistance in, in accepting me as being one of them. And again, this morning, we're speaking to author David Matthews. The name of his new book is Ace of Spades. It's his memoir of growing up as a biracial child here in America. Now, what was the writing process like for you for this book? Uh, was it painful to kind of revisit that time where you were trying to decide you know who you were going to become and, right. and not being accepted was that right. part painful you know it was it was odd when uh, a couple of people suggested that i i write this book because i'd been telling these stories about growing up for for years and uh when when someone said you know you should write, really write this down in the back of my mind i thought well does anyone care about this stuff i mean isn't isn't this just sort of quaint and and antiquated and all this stuff isn't it over and then really the turning point for me was when Katrina happened. And I actually saw that, that race and the way it plays out in America is perhaps worse even 
than it was when I was growing up. And I really thought that, you know what, that there's especially something going on with black men in this country that hasn't been addressed in terms of, you know, every other minority group in America has made gains and it seems like no one's talking about the fact that black men in this country are actually worse off in many ways than they were even when I was a kid and I made some of those choices. Um, so I thought that it might actually be, you know, helpful if I could share some of my experiences almost as a spy in America because I got to see white America when they didn't know that a person of color was in the room with them. And even now, I'm constantly shocked and amazed at the things people will say assuming that I'm white. And this is living in a supposedly liberal, progressive place like New York City. So I can only imagine what it must be like for people of color in, you know, Kansas or the Midwest or, or places that are a little less, you know, overtly progressive. So I really thought that maybe I can do a service here by showing white America that you don't always know who's in the room with you, A, and B, that the work is not done that every time you say something like racism's over or we'll look at Barack Obama, he did it, that you're denying the legacy of, of slavery and the difficult situation and, and the cycle of poverty and how hard it is for many black Americans to escape that. Now, let's talk about the title of the book. And again, the title of the book is Ace of Spades. Um, I'm Rodney Lear. You're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. We're speaking to David Matthews. Now, tell us about the significance of that title. And I know it has something to do with your grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, well, when I was a kid, uh, I li as I said, I lived with my grandmother and my father. And my grandmother was um, very proudly, you know, she referred to herself as colored, um, but very proudly so, you know, member of the NAACP. She was uh, one of the editors at the Afro-American, as, as was my grandfather and my father. Um, so her ties in the black community went back as far as, you know, 1864 and post-slavery post in terms of our families. Um, but for some reason, you know, she was light-skinned, and for some reason she still identified black people on a caste system. And I just remember we would watch TV, and the news would come on, in Baltimore, and if there was ever, you know, a young black man in handcuffs being walked, walked, you know, to the courthouse by a policeman, she would say one of two things. She would either sort of sigh and say, oh, no, it's one of us, and alternately she would sigh and say, oh, look at that one, as black as the ace of spades. And that confused me greatly because I could tell that her heart was broken, that it was a black person, but she also seemed to make a distinction on how black they were. And I, I just assumed black was black. I, was, I didn't know that you could have it both ways in a sense and that, that she would view this person based on the degree of their blackness. So growing up, that was always really confusing to me. And so as soon as I started writing the book, I knew that Ace of Spades is going to be my title. You know, for the, the gambling aspect of it, the metaphor that it works, and, you know, it's a great card to have, um, but it's also a pejorative and, and something that you don't want to be in the American context at the same time, and sort of embracing both of those ideas uh, was the goal in using that. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. On the phone with me now is David Matthews. He's the author of the book, Ace of Spades. The book tells of David's story growing up as a biracial child in America and the racism and the prejudice he faced and the identity crisis he faced growing up as a biracial child here in America. Now, let me ask you this. You admit that you swung from white racist to a black militant to total extremes. Explain why you believe that happened to you. Um, well, in Baltimore... Um 
it's a very sort of a, a lot of the white population is very blue collar or was I should say, preface that by saying was I haven't been there in about 10 15 years um was very blue collar and things were very polarized so it wasn't as though white people were just keeping to themselves and black people were just keeping to themselves there was a little bit of outright animosity between the two um you know white people at least the one many of the ones i knew viewed the black population as preying on them or ruining the city or you know something equally short-sighted and uh black people viewed the white population either as potential economic victims which makes socioeconomic sense or as the reason they weren't allowed to sort of move up through the ranks of local and city government in some ways uh, which i understood but as a kid you know we had we, when i picked sides the side i picked they were un, unabashed in their racism uh toward black people so it was i hate to use the word peer pressure but when a group of kids are doing stupid stuff and uh part of it has to do with being a racist or using epithets you know in order to not be found out i was the one you know cheering the loudest whenever uh whenever any of that stuff was going on I and mean, it was part of the the sickness of racism in a way and in my case as i said i i i tried to turn it up to 11 uh because i knew that i had something to hide and i wanted to divert suspicion away from me um as i got older and uh the late 1980s sort of uh, arrived and i was in college and the whole sort of resurgence of black nationalism took over for the first time i felt that there was not only did i not have to be ashamed in a way but that i could actually use all the anger i'd built up as a form of pride um you know my father had been friends with malcolm x and james baldwin so all these stories i had grown up with as soon as you know public enemy and chuck d and spike lee and these sort of really uh black pride movies and black afrocentric cultural uh things started to sort of crest i knew that i could take some of the stuff that my dad had told me and actually fuse the history that i knew was part of my life that i had ignored and put that into sort of a pop culture dynamic that i no longer had to be ashamed of because it was actually in vogue to be these things for once so i did as with everything when i was young i swung all the way to the other direction and and i thought louis farrakhan made perfect sense and you know francis crest welsing and her theories were brilliant and the most incisive things i'd ever heard about race um so it took me a while you know i went from one extreme to the other until i landed somewhere softly in the middle in my mid 20s which was a while ago okay now let me ask you this now during your white racist phase mm-hmm. um I, I, that had to be very difficult because you're trying to identify with these kids but um but you can't go home to meet my parents you right. know that yeah. kind of thing how difficult was that it was extremely difficult um i would you know there were a couple occasions where my dad would walk through the neighborhood and he would uh see me and i would ignore him you know friends would say they would see him waving to me and they would say who's that and i'd say i don't know uh and that was extremely painful i um and had your father known about your activity i mean you would have been in a lot of trouble as as you said again at home yeah i yeah. would have been in a lot of trouble yes um and you know my dad was uh i'm sh- he the first he found out about it was when he read the book he's like i had no idea this was going on if i had we would have had many serious discussions um so it was incredibly painful not to be able to acknowledge any part of my home life um and it's nothing that i i wish on anyone to have those kind of uh conflicts with their own skin and their own family at being at odds 
And again, in case you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Dave Matthews. He's the author of the book, Ace of Spades. I'm Rodney Lear. You're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. Now, some describe you as a chameleon, and even you admit that you spent time passing as a white person and as a black person. Explain how you were treated differently when you were perceived as a black man as opposed to a white man. Um, well, it was to be to be fair, it was a little bit harder for me to be uh, perceived outright as a, a a black person in Baltimore, unless I was hanging out with other my, my black friends, um, because just my skin tone re- really is going to depend on who it's next to. I don't know if that makes sense, but again, in a in a place where there are only white or black people, uh, I'm dark enough so that I'm I'm hanging out with black people that I would look like more, a light skinned part of that that group and i'm light enough that if i were hanging out with white people it would just be assumed that i was a slightly darker maybe you know jewish or palestinian or maybe italian version of them um but when i was hanging out with with uh black friends it was uh it was different you know police cars would slow down and ask where we were going um dating it really came to the fore um the first thing any parent would ask me when i would date white girls before i even got into the threshold they would ask me, just like the kids in school did, what are you? Uh, and it was sort of their code for, I'm not sure that I'm going to let you go out with my daughter just yet unless you give me the the answer that I'm looking for. Um, so that was the way that I felt it most. Key. And when they asked, did, were you honest? No, never. Okay. Uh, if it was a, in Baltimore, that was still, you know, a, it was relatively dangerous to say something like that. Um, even in the, the early to mid-'80s, you, you could not really say, oh, I'm mixed, because, again, mixed meant black back then. There was no wiggle room. There was no – Tiger Woods had not yet been born uh, in terms of uh, American consciousness. So if I had said mixed, they would have said black, and that probably in most cases would have been as far as I'd gotten into the to, into their homes. Um, and so a lot of it was born out of cowardice, you know, uh, which I'm not, not proud of. But, you know, being treated as a white person, it was very easy to – to see the differences um you know i never i could go into a place and get a job sometimes without references uh you know my first jobs were in the service industry in baltimore and i was a waiter or a bartender and i couldn't help but notice that all of the waiters and bartenders and people who were sort of in the front of the house were white and all the dishwashers and porters were black and that may have been a coincidence or it may have been uh you know structural institutional institutionalized racism uh, but I wasn't going to test the theory out by saying, oh, by the way, I'm black. You know, I wanted all the benefits. Now, let me ask you this now. When you were hanging with some of your white friends and let's say a racial slur would come up against black people, mm-hmm. African-Americans, um, what was your internal reaction? Because I, I know that you couldn't re- react outwardly, but what was your, your thinking inside? I mean, I view it now as having a type of cancer. Um, it's one of those things that eats away at you. Um, and because you can't express it, it just becomes more and more cancerous, and it sort of uh, it really affects how you feel about yourself on a profound level. I mean, that kind of self hatred is is hard to explain. I, I imagine that uh, people who are closeted homosexuals would be the closest thing, you know, if they have to pretend to to be something they're not and listen to people put down a lifestyle choice or or an orientation. That's the closest I can imagine that it would be. That you just feel like you're denying, you know, and my white family was never there for me. I never met them. And yet this black family, who was my real cultural and personal salvation, I had to ignore. You know, and, and, la- and every time I laughed at a racist joke, I was essentially saying, you know, family who raised me and saved me, um, this is sort of uh, me spitting in your face. And that's how it felt inside. 
that I was definitely not honoring the, the people who had looked out for me and those cultural influences. Now, let me ask you this, having experienced both sides, um, how racist is America? Um, it's, it's tricky. I think that America is actually more racist in many ways than it's ever been in that since many people think that the problem is over, it's not discussed anymore. Um, when something like a Katrina comes, you know, there were things in place to allow a Katrina to happen in terms of uh, the conditions that black people had to live in in New Orleans and the way things were gerrymandered and the way things neighborhoods were sort of parsed out so that certain people, mostly poor black people, had to live in, in places that were vulnerable to any type of calamity. Forget about a, a dam breaking. And then when that happens, you get this sort of shocked, oh, we didn't know, how could this happen in America type thing which I find really disturbing, because if we had been having a dialogue all, all along about the state of black America, um, these things might have been on the way to getting fixed without a national tragedy or a weather event to bring them to the fore. So, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both, I think. I wish that people would acknowledge that uh, there, there's more to it than just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know. The, the Shelby Steels of the world, um, I, I think, have it wrong when they suggest that, that black America is, is black America's own worst night enemy, or worst enemy. And again, this morning, in case you're just tuning in, we're speaking to author David Matthews. The name of his book is Ace of Spades. It's the story of his life growing up as a biracial child in America. Now, let me ask you this now. I know that you've had the opportunity throughout your life to speak to other um, biracial children, mm -hmm. did they struggle as much as you did? That's a very, very good question as well. Um, the, one, the last reason that I wrote the book, that I thought that I had a place or, or a platform or some sort of insight that other people might not have is, I've met very, very few mixed-race people who actually could be either. Most of the mixed-race people that I've met uh, you know, just because of the way genetic expression works, most of them I can tell. I can usually tell with 99% surety who's mixed and who's not. But most of the time, they tend to fall on the uh, more easily identifiable African-American side of things. So while I've met people who are mixed, and I'm sure we share some similarities, I think the difference is, and the, the way that I have maybe an insider or, or a struggle that, that they didn't have, is that I've actually been able to go undetected in terms of being a mixed person in many ways, which gave me an insight that that I think some other people might not have based on the way they look. Um, you know, I feel sort of an empathy with a Tiger Woods or a Barack Obama for being mixed, but still, you know, when it comes time to get a cab or go for a job interview, if, if they weren't who they were and just had their skin tone, I don't think people would be asking them or care whether they were half Kansan or half Asian or part Indian. I still think that America views you based on skin tone. Um, so I hope that there's some sort of empathy or similarities that people who are mixed race can, can gain from my experiences. Um, but I think it was so specific and so singular that you'd really have to look to like an Anatole Broyard or, or one of those cats who was able to live his life essentially as a spy in America. Um, so hopefully my message is more to people who are black or white and not mixed because those are the people that, that, you know, that I've been able to be in their company and view sort of their behaviors uh, un unnoticed, which I think gives me a franker appreciation for how things, how black America is responsible for some things and how white America is responsible for some things. 
Okay, and finally this morning, I want to ask you this. Now, we talked earlier about how you spent years having what you refer to as self-hate. What's your acceptance like today um, about yourself in terms of your race and your identity? Um, right now, uh, for the last probably decade, I've identified myself as black, which, you know, to people who see me might be an, an odd choice, but, you know, there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, number one, and most importantly, I couldn't hide from the fact that my entire cultural upbringing and household was an African-American one. Um, you know, I grew up the son of a black man in a black house in a black neighborhood. Um, everything else that I tried to pretend to be, I had to go and hunt for and put a mask on for. Um, so, you know, I'm a black kid, as far as I'm concerned, from the streets of Baltimore. Uh, and I also feel, despite the way I look, uh, on a frank level, that brothers need me more than, than white people do. Um, in terms of how I identify myself, I think that black America um, needs someone with a voice like mine, I hope, more than white America needs someone with a voice like mine, because you know I'm here in many ways to point out a lot of the things that are wrong with white America, and black America too, but I think white America, since it, it holds the purse strings and uh, most of the control of government and business, that they, uh, they get the lion's share of my critiques. All right. Well, we're out of time this morning. If our listeners would like to get a copy of the book, how can they do so? Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any major outlet. They've, they've been very good about putting it out there, and we just got a great review in the New York Times. So uh, it's, it's everywhere. Okay, and this is, David, this is your first book? First one, yes. Next, the sequel's coming out shortly. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Remember, more information about the show can be found on our Facebook page. Visit us at Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Like us there. You can also listen to the show anytime you like. All you have to do is go to your favorite podcast app, and there you can look for Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear again and subscribe to Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on your favorite podcast app. Well, that's it for this edition of Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. Until next week, be encouraged. Sunday morning, Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday, Sunday morning, magazine. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes. From running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton. Motivation that moves you.